I want to begin a series today that'll take place over the next three weeks. And, and the title of this series is, is Guardrails for Your Soul. Guardrails for Your Soul. And the reason that I want to bring that up is because I don't believe that there is a week that goes by when there's not somebody that we hear about being found out. Uh, in other words, they had a secret. There was something going on in the background. It gets discovered and suddenly everybody knows, whether it be in the political scene or in the business scene or in the family scene. It just, maybe it was their personal life or maybe it was in their family. Maybe it was something they did at work, but it gets found out. And, and oftentimes when we hear this, we are caught in this moment of disbelief of how, how did that happen? How did we not know what was going on? And, and, and suddenly as things get discovered, we begin to recognize that there are people that we know, maybe even us, that are living double lives. Maybe they had a secret sin or, or maybe they were lying to the people that were closest to them, lying to the people that depended on them, lying to their family. Maybe they were lying to a constituency lying at work, but now it's been discovered, it's been called out, and they've been caught. And when that happens, there's a part of us that likes to hear the nitty-gritty of the story. We begin to think, you know, what, what is it that happened and what's going on there? And I don't know about you, chances are you've had this same thought, but we, we at least think to ourselves, if not say out loud, this question, how could they live with themselves? How could they live with themselves? I mean, how can you be publicly one way and privately completely different? How can you be one way with this group and completely different with this group? How could they carry on so long with that going on in the background? How do they keep up the charade? How do they, how do they put a face on, on, on all of that? Or, bringing it down even into our homes, how did they show up for dinner in their own home and look across the table and look their wife in the face or she look her husband in the face and even try to be sincere? All the while knowing that this is going on privately and one day it will be public and in their mind knowing that if this is discovered or when this is discovered, it is going to blow up my family and it's going to destroy my marriage or it's going to ruin the business, it's gonna undermine my career. And everybody that I know that depends on me is gonna be shocked because of the double life. Let me, let me bring this even into the industry in which I am a part of. I don't know how many times in the past through the years there have been discoveries of those that are in pulpits and they have discovered that for a long, long time there has been this secret life going on and, and we ask ourselves the question, how could you even show up in the pulpit? How do you preach knowing that this stuff is going on in the background? And even as we ask that question, it brings to ourselves an assumption that when we say that, it, it comes out like this. I, I certainly could not live with myself if that was me. And the reason that it's so difficult to imagine 
them living with themselves is because we try to put ourselves in that position and we think, I couldn't live with myself if that was me, or we would say, my conscience or my integrity wouldn't allow me to live with myself if that was going on. But you know what the truth is? Yes, you could. Yes, you could. You couldn't live with your current self if you're in a right relationship with the Lord, but if left unattended, if neglected, your current self might not be your future self. We all know people who at one time were living victoriously for Jesus that just quit attending to their soul. And the reason that this happens is because people think that it can't happen. And what they're really saying is, that can't happen to me. I don't think that could ever happen to me where I could get to the point where my external life looks one way and what is going on on the internal side is completely different from what everybody else sees. And the best way to keep that from happening to you and to me is to assume that it could happen and build guardrails in our life to make sure that it doesn't happen. And so I wanna begin this series today called Guardrails for the Soul. It's gonna take place over the next three weeks, at least three weeks, and, and I want you to promise me that you'll come to all of them. So Father, I pray right now as we prepare our hearts for the things that you want to reveal to us, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit of God says through his word. Give us courage to obey what you would have us to do. And Father, for those that this message is hitting right in the middle of their eyes as they are living this kind of way, give them the courage to put a period at the end of that paragraph and start a new life today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When we were away last week, I drove a car for my daughter and son-in-law from Springfield, Missouri to or from Charlotte, North Carolina, Springfield, Missouri, and part of that journey took me through the mountains of Kentucky. Have any of you ever been there? A few of you have. So we were going up this mountain, and I don't know about you, but I don't like my cruise control to have to work if my foot can do it for it. And so I was applying the extra pressure that was needed to maintain my speed and maybe even pass a few cars on the way up the hill. And as I got to the top of the mountain, there was this very small sign that said, curve ahead. It needed to be way bigger than it was. And as I topped over the top of the mountain, I suddenly recognized that the curve that they were talking about was much closer than the sign indi indicated, and it was much sharper than indicated. The only warning I had is that as you got to the top, suddenly the road on our side became black from people that had slammed on their brakes and left the marks on the road and, and was able to, to see that in time to make the turn. And as I got to the top, there was a guardrail up there that was dinged all over the place. And I begin to recognize, I wonder how many lives that guardrail saved because it kept people from going over the cliff to certain death. I remember Randy Chiz, when uh, we attended Word of Life, preached a series with this same title, and I, and I wanna give him credit for that, and, and Andy Stanley has also contributed to some of the thoughts that I'm bringing, and so I certainly want to acknowledge that. But over the next three weeks, I wanna introduce to you three guardrails 
or habits that will help each of us ensure that the, pe- the person that we are living with on the inside is the same person that the public sees on display. Guardrails that will help the people around us actually see who we really are and make sure that they're getting what they think they are. Now, you don't have to live for very long to begin to realize that life can be hard on your soul. And when I speak of soul, I'm talking about the, that, that part on the inside of us that, that contains our fears and our worries and our hopes and our dreams and our wishes and, and can experience disappointment when those things are out of alignment. And, and we have learned in our world to put on a happy face and to enter our world and just make do with everything that's going on. And so we have taught ourselves that it's okay to have a public face when privately there may be things going on that are different. But your soul, your inner being, that inner part that only you know about, you also recognize that life is hard on that. And here's what I would like you to write down. Healthy souls, if left unattended, become unhealthy. Healthy souls, if left unattended, become unhealthy because nothing gets better when left unattended. Now, when you woke up this morning, you went from your bedroom in probably into your bathroom and you turned the lights on and you looked at yourself in the mirror and if you're anything like me, it was like... (gasps) My hair looked pretty good, what there is left of it, when I went to bed. I don't know what happens in seven hours in the middle of the night, but we all stand there and we look in the mirror and we begin to instantly recognize what we have to do before we go out publicly. Now, I'm wearing a Band-Aid on my face this morning because you would expect at my age, I wouldn't get pimples anymore. I discovered that is a lie from Satan. And I discovered that when you mess with those, you either don't come out in public or you slap a Band-Aid on that baby. And that's what I did. Some of you spend significant amount of time after your six, seven, eight, nine, if you're a teenager, 12, 13, 14 hours of sleep and you recognize that in that little time when your body was doing nothing, there were significant changes to your breath, to your teeth, and if left unattended, you would not have wanted to go out in public. And here's the thing. Whether it is our appearance or our performance or our reputation, we attend to those outward things that we know people are watching because we are competing for approval, for acceptance and progress. And so it's natural to pay attention to the exterior. Now, I'm about to offend some of you ladies, but I promise before this message is over, I will have offended everybody. So I, I, get, I get a kick out of the fact that I have... I have opened my blinds and I have watched in the parking lot. As women, before you get out of the car, you reach over into your purse and you pull out your high heels out of your purse and you slip off your flip-flops and you put those things on and then you walk in. And then you get here and as soon as you sit down, you take those suckers off. 
and you put the flip-flops back on because there's a difference in your mind in looking good and comfort. Guys, if you ever wonder why their purses are so big, it's because there's probably three sets of shoes in there. <laughs> now, because I'm an equal opportunity offender, how many of you have ever heard of a store called Bucky's? If you've ever been in the South, maybe you have. There's a, there's a few of you. As I was driving from North Carolina to Missouri, there's a place in Crossville, Tennessee called Bucky's. And there are signs for this place for 600 miles before you get there. And so I had the grandkids in the car and everybody, we're, we're stopping at Bucky's just because you have to see this place. So we stopped at Bucky's and we went in, and interesting enough, there is in one section a full length mirror. And I'm a people watcher. And I watched guys in particular as we get in front of a full-length mirror. And here's what happens to guys. They walk by. We think we look good. I mean, we'll just stand there for a minute and just kind of, until the wife comes by and slaps him on the butt and says, just keep moving. That was not the response of the ladies that walked by that mirror. But by the way, you guys look marvelous today. Can I, just, can I just tell you that you look absolutely fabulous in your heels and your sucked in stomach, guys. But regardless of how much time and effort we put into looking good on the outside, there's only one person who can be attentive to your soul. Only one person who really knows what's going on in your heart, and that is you. And here's why that's so important, and we're gonna talk about it for the next few weeks, because listen closely, and write this down if you would please. The health of your soul determines your capacity for duplicity. The health of your soul determines your capacity for duplicity. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Duplicity is your ability to be one person with one group and another person with another group. Or being one person on the outside that everybody else sees knowing full well that there is somebody on the inside that is a completely different person. And how you care for your soul determines your capacity, how much duplicity you can stand, how much duplicity you can live with knowing that there's a different version of you that everybody sees versus who you really know that you are. And when you are no longer the self that you used to be or the no longer the self that you want to be or no longer the self that you thought to be, the health of your soul determines how wide the gap becomes between who you are in the inside and who everybody else thinks you are. How wide is that gap? And oftentimes we find ourselves in a world where it is discovered so often that we live in a world where many, many people are pretending to be somebody that they're not. And that gap between who we are on the outside and who we are on the inside is something that we try to manage until finally it cracks or it breaks or we're discovered. That means that a healthy soul has very little tolerance for duplicity. 
A healthy soul realizes instantly what's going on on the inside is not what is reflected on the outside. And so there is work to do to make sure that these two people are the same. And what a healthy soul does is it says, I will stay one person, and that is called integrity. But when you and I neglect the health of our souls, we create the capacity for duplicity that ultimately comes back to haunt us or to hurt us or to destroy the people that are important to us. It determines just how far we go before our conscience won't let us pretend any longer. By the way, a healthy soul has a very active conscience, assuming that there's any conscience left if you let it go for very long. The health of your soul determines whether or not you compartmentalize your life. Whether or not you say, well, this is just for that part and I'm, I'm different all the way around here. The health of your soul depend, de de determines how much hypocrisy you allow within your life. Are you willing to lie to other people? How easy is it for you to lie to yourself? The health of your soul determines whether or not you choose to close the gap the moment that you begin to recognize that you're not the same person inside and out, or are you willing to just manage the gap and manage the reputation? Because managing the gap eventually breaks down and what is on the inside eventually breaks out. So here's the point. You and I have the potential to become somebody that we would despise if we met them if we don't manage the health of our soul. And the reason I know that is because people do it all the time. They do it all the time. And the difference between those that do and don't is the health of the soul. So this series, we're gonna talk about three guardrails or three habits that we need to develop. Now, I'm gonna ask that you would turn to Romans chapter 12, but before you read that, before I begin to dive into that, let me just set this up for you for a moment. Paul wrote this letter to the first century Christians living in Rome. He had never been there yet. Uh, we call it the book of Romans, and, and he begins to outline and describe his version of what it means to be a Christ follower. And, and in this passage that we're going to look at, he asks people to do something. He asks people that he has never met before to do something that on the surface seems to not make any sense at all. It seems irrational. It seems illogical. And I'm sure that when they, they read that, they probably hesitated a little bit at what they were reading. But, and, and, and when I read this, the tendency or the temptation is for us to do the same thing. It's like, whoa, 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 that, that might be too much for me. Now, I recognize looking around this room, most of you have read this entire book multiple times, but I would like you today to try to read it as if you were hearing it for the very first time and let it kind of shock your senses just a little bit as I read this to you and begin to unlock this with you. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you. Now, this is Paul. He's leaning in. He's grabbing us by the collar, and he's saying to us, I don't want you to miss this. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Here's the twist right here, and this is, this is important for us. He's not speaking in view of God's authority. He's not speaking in view of God wagging his finger in your face as to how bad of a job that you're doing representing him. 
He is not asking you to look at this in view of God's rules and his regulations and his laws and his commandments. He is saying that's not how this Christian faith works in this new covenant. And we do that because oftentimes when we read the scriptures, we think of it in view of God's absolute disapproval of us and how much we have to sin before he kicks us in the rear end and said, you're out of here. And Paul says, listen, I urge you in view of God's mercy, in view of of everything that God has done for you, I urge you to listen to this. Here's what I want you to do. And he says, I want you to offer, which means you and I willingly choose to present, to yield, to submit, to place at God's disposal anything that he wants to do, to offer your bodies The context that he's talking about here is all of you, not just your physical body, but everything that there is about you. Everything that there is within the sphere of your life and influence. I want you to present your whole self, everything about you to God. And here's where if you're hearing this for the first time, it gets just a little bizarre, a little weird, a little crazy, because I want you to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice if you were hearing those words for the first time in the first century you understood something because in our day and age we don't do sacrifices but in the culture to which he was writing it was a physical reality and they did it all the time everybody that he was writing to had a visual of what this looked like you took an animal and the animal died you did not survive sacrifice if you are an animal. And Paul is saying this, you can stay with me here, he's saying, I want you to consider presenting yourselves to God willingly as a living sacrifice, living dead to yourself, alive only to God. Now the good news is that you don't have to die to do this, the bad news is, Only you can willingly submit yourself to God, to which most of us sit back and go, okay, okay, okay. Pastor Doug, you're moving just a little bit too fast for me here. So most of the people I talk to, and I include myself because I talk to myself sometimes too, fall into this category. We want to make a deal with God. and And here's what most religious people do. Say, Lord, this seems just a bit extreme to me. How about this? Any of you ever said that? You bunch of liars. <laughs> I was the only one that had my hand up, and I know that can't possibly be the case. So we say, I'm not sure that I want to surrender my whole life to you, the whole living sacrifice thing. How about I just call on you when I need you? I'm pretty capable. I'm pretty good at handling life. I know what my goals and desires are and I think I can work my way. And when I get into trouble, how about I just call on you when I need you? Let me tell you what happens during that approach. If you approach your faith and Christianity of just calling on God when you need him, then you will call on God more often than everybody else who willingly gave their life as a, as a living sacrifice to God because you keep doing the same stupid thing over and over and over and over again. And here is how you know 
If you have fallen into this category of I'll just call on God when it's convenient. Number one, you keep confessing the same sin again and again. This relationship is starting to feel like the last relationship. This marriage is starting to feel like the last one. This friendship is starting to show the same signs and the same problems that my previous friendships did. Or this job is starting to to show the same problems of the last job I was at. And round and round and round you go with God asking for his help because you keep getting in trouble trying to live the Christian life unsurrendered. And it just doesn't work. And here's how I can prove this is true to you. Every one of us in our minds, we can think back in times in our life where we have the greatest regret in our life. Or maybe it was a season of life where you had your greatest regret. And and you know what I'm talking about because it's those places in our minds that we go to where we think, I wish I could go back and undo that weekend. I I wish I could go back and and relive that week or I I wish I could go back and and undo that spring break trip or that job or that relationship or maybe that marriage or maybe that move. But your greatest regret in your life took place during a time when it was I'll call on God when I need him season. It wasn't surrendered. You were not surrendered to the will of your heavenly Father. You were, and I'll call on you when I need him. And then you mistakenly thought that you could pray your way out of it, the situation that you had behaved your way into. And here's what happens, because people call me all the time and say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I am so disappointed in God. I prayed that he would just make this situation all right, and, and, and he didn't do it. And, and they asked me, so what's up with God? And God is wondering, what's up with you? I mean, I died so that you wouldn't have to go through all that garbage again. I've covered this. I sent my son into the world to pay for the sins that you keep committing again, and you're undermining your own success, your own relationships, and your own future. You continue to sin in something that I've already paid for because you are just calling on me when you think you need me. And Jesus says, but I'm inviting you to a different life. I'm inviting you to follow my son. I'm inviting you to surrender yourself to me. I'm inviting you to trust me. And God said, there is nothing wrong with me. I'm just hoping that at some point you'll just come to your senses and realize the best thing to do is surrender it all to me. And so Paul assures us that presenting ourselves to God as living sacrifices, as crazy as that may sound, he assures us that it is not unreasonable. In fact, he tells us it's actually the opposite. So look at me with this. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And we say, oh, that's crazy. That's irrational. Who would do that? And then there comes this line, which is, and then there's this Greek word, logakane. We get our word logic from that, or reasonable, depending on the Bible version that you're reasoning. He said, it is your logical, it is your reasonable act of service. This is the most logical and reasonable thing, Paul says, that you can possibly do in following Jesus. And we're going, wait. (laughs) Surrendering everything about me is the logical, reasonable thing to do? And Paul is going, absolutely. And we say, well, why is that? And Paul says, because God loves you. God loves you. You are submitting yourself to a God that knows you and loves you 
more than you can possibly know and love yourself. You're in safer hands in his hands than you are with your own will. In fact, when you look at it that way, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure what's going to happen this afternoon, and I certainly don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the rest of the week, but God does. I haven't lived tomorrow yet, and he's already seen it. Would it not make sense then for us to put our hands into the one that already knows the future and can guide and direct us in ways that will be to our best because we don't know what is best. But he will not force his will on you. It's by the mercies of God, not by the power, authority, or force of God because God's love does not operate that way. But he does know that if you will yield yourself to him completely, offering yourself as a living sacrifice, it will be the best way for your family, for your relationships, for your morality, for your future. And Jesus has laid it out and invited us into this. And so Paul says, look, this whole idea of, of surrendering your whole life to the Heavenly Father, on the surface it looks like a lot, but when you get into it, it is more than what you can dream. It's the framework of the entire Christian life that we respond to God in order to gain something that we could never give ourselves because he has more knowledge than we do. In fact, not only is it logical and not only is it explained to us that we could willingly do this, but in chapter six of Romans, he states it from the negative when he says, look, he says, the, the first one says do this, and then it says here, do not offer any part of yourself to sin. Don't do that. In fact, the Apostle Paul personifies sin, and for those of us that have lived life and, and, and sometimes we look at ourselves in the mirror and we wonder, who in the world lives inside of me? And what are they doing to me? When we look ourselves in the eyes, Paul has kind of personified this whole thing, and, and he, he says, because there is somebody that is living in there. There's somebody that is living in there until Christ comes in that is bent on your destruction. He says, do not offer any part of yourself as instruments of unrighteousness, leaving us with the understanding of this. You are either going to offer yourselves to God or you're going to offer yourself to sin. There's no middle ground. And the best way to understand sin this morning is let me put it into this word, selfishness. My way, my appetite at your expense, my appetite at my wife's expense, my appetite being met at my children's expense, my appetite being met at the expense of those that I work with, and your appetite being met at my expense. That's, that's what sin is. That's what the nature of sin is as described by Jesus and taught in the New Testament. My appetite being met at your expense. And Paul says, don't let sin reign in your body, but rather offer yourselves to God, those who have been brought from death to life. And, and here's the application part, to offer every part of yourself. In other words, there's that living sacrifice. Lord, I can't just give you part of me. I want you to forgive me of my sins, but don't bother me with my behavior. Lord, I want you to take away all of my guilt, but don't make me change my lifestyle that led me into that in the first place. Lord, I'm, I'm after all of the grace that you can give, but do not tell me how I am to live. And the Lord says, that's not total sacrifice. That's not even, I surrender a part. 
He's saying to us, I want your ears, I want your eyes, your mind, your hands, your feet, offer your resources. I want your hopes, your dreams, your desires. I want you to offer everything to me. I'm surrendering all of me to your intent and to your purposes and to your agenda. And then what follows is one of my favorite little passages in the New Testament and it's easy to misunderstand because of the way that it shows up in our English text. But he says, if you do this, and here's the promise and the payoff. If you do this, then sin shall no longer be your master. If you submit yourself to God, sin will no longer be your master. And again, he personifies sin like sin's a thing. Have you ever felt like sin is your master? And we all would say, yes. Yes, I have felt like that from time to time. If you've ever dealt with an addiction, didn't you feel like you had another master? It was destroying your life and your family and your health and you're thinking, I felt like there was somebody else living inside of me running my life. And Jesus said, I'm inviting you to step into surrender, daily surrender, surrendering everything, all of your mind and your body as instruments to God's righteousness so that sin is no longer your master. And when you say yes to sin, sin becomes your master. There are so many different people that believe that living in sin or running away from God leads to freedom and liberation. You know what, you know what sin liberates you from? Yourself. It causes you to be divided. Because self-centeredness will always lead you to a place of division of who you are. You wake up one morning and you realize you're two different people, that what you see and what they are actually getting is two different things. And there's such a gap. And we live in a world where people are accustomed to managing the gap. And they live with this great fear of, oh no, I hope that the right people don't meet to discover that there are two of me. Do you know? that the people that have been there and been discovered and come back to Christ and have clawed their way back into a life of righteousness, do you know what they would tell you today? I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable and logical and true and proper worship. It's the most logical thing you could do. That's what the, and I could have a number of you come up here and give a testimony to that. Paul says, don't conform as he moves on to the pattern of this world. The pattern of this world will split you in half. The pattern of culture will split you in half. If sin is your master, it will eventually split you in half. And you will become somebody that you are forced to live with that you can't imagine living with. Because sin is your master will always increase your capacity for duplicity. So what can we do? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's another payoff that comes with that. Then you will be able to test, which means I'm gonna be able to discern my options and approve, which means I'm gonna recognize what it feels like and know what it is when the Lord is leading me and I'm not leading myself, what God's will is. Now, here's what I need to tell you. If you are more afraid of the will of God than you are the penalty of sin, if somebody has led you to believe that God's will for your life is so filled with unhappiness, joyless, then you have been lied to and you are deceived. 
And there are people that are in our churches that believe that if I give myself completely to what God wants to do, it's gonna lead me to an unhappy life. Believe me, Satan is a liar and a thief and has somehow tried to switch the price tags on this for us. And we have a younger generation growing up that somehow believe that to offer myself as a living sacrifice means that I lose everything I want to do. And Satan is going, yes, yes, yes. Do you know that if you give in to that, Satan leads you right to that threshold where he's going, listen, this is your freedom. This is your life. You get to do what you want. And then when you take that step, Satan and all of his demons step back and shame you for it. Because when sin is your master, there is no mercy. There is no grace. And Jesus says, my will is good. We want a good life. He said, my will is pleasing. Ooh, that sounds good. And my will is perfect. The very things that we aim at are only provided in self-sacrifice. I've said all of that to get to my one and only point. Here it is. Guardrail number one. I've said it 20 different ways. Surrender your will to God. You wanna care for your soul? Surrender your will to God. Every single day. At the beginning of every single day, this is the routine that we must get into. If we're looking in the mirror and recognize that seven, eight hours of sleep has messed up our hair, made our skin messed up a little bit, we need new makeup, we, you know, if we need that after that few hours, how much more so do we then need every morning to attend to our soul? And I believe that it starts with a really, really simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I surrender myself to you today. Worship team, if you'd please come. My hands, my feet, my ears, my eyes, my thoughts, my desires, my hopes and dreams, my talents, my opportunities. I surrender all. I surrender all. Because you know what this day holds for me. And I no longer want to look in the mirror and know that my capacity for duplicity has widened and all I'm doing is managing the gap. I so want to have the integrity of being who I really am. You see, daily surrender sensitizes your conscience. If you'll pray this prayer every day, when you get into those situations where you're going to be challenged, your conscience has been made alive that morning with that prayer. And believe me, if you want a healthy soul, you have to have a healthy conscience. And you begin to let the Spirit of the Lord run interference for you. Number one, there's going to be some things that He will prevent you from doing. Other times when you come face to face with it, because you've prayed that prayer, your conscience is sensitive and you'll have the strength and the energy of the indwelling of Christ to lead you in a new direction. By which we also need to be baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit for boldness and grace to overcome the hurdles that are in our lives.